Thanks for pressing play. And welcome to a very extremely extra super duper ding dong special episode with a very, very special guest. This is episode 300. And uh, normally I start off by giving you a long, you know, an overview over the, about the dialogue you're about to hear and maybe tease you a little bit as to why you should stick around. All I really want you to know about episode 300 is our guest is legendary author, the one and only Dushka Zapata. And uh, she's been on more than any other guest. And she was our very first guest. And so to celebrate episode 300 with Dushka is uh, the really the person who started it all is really incredibly special. What I will tell you and tease you with a little bit is that Dushka, like she almost always does, is going to do a reading for us. And if by chance um, you don't know who Dushka is, she's one of the most consumed writers on planet Earth. And she got famous on question and answer site Quora. And uh, just go to Amazon and type in Dushka and uh, just buy some shit and start reading it and you'll know or follow her for free on Quora. And um, anyway, what I want to tell you is if a, if a reading from Dushka doesn't make you happy, I don't know what will. Her recent books uh, include but are not limited to Please Don't Blame Love, A Relationship Handbook, The Love of Your Life is You, and You Belong Everywhere. Now... Get your mind in a different place and get ready for the legendary Dushka Zapata. You're listening to Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different. We are the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. Around here, we believe that real dialogue is the unlock for real learning and deep understanding. We feature uninterrupted, unmanipulated, and ad-free conversations with non-obvious thinkers, the pirates, the dreamers, and innovators who are inspiring all of us to make our world a different place. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Dushka, my love, how are you? Better now that I'm seeing you, Chris. <laughs> That's how I feel about you. I was going to say, I stole your line. <laughs> well, you can have anything of mine that you like. I'm happy to share. Um, tell me about the hat that you're wearing. Oh, yeah, this is a fun, this is, a, this is my new favorite beanie. So as you might recall, my wife's family owns and runs what is now the last working orchard in San Jose, California. Oh, I did not know that. And so this is our Cosentino Farm beanie that I am showcasing today. I love that her name is on your, written across your forehead. Yeah, why not? Who's L? Who? What other name do I want on my forehead? Nike Absolutely. for fuck's sakes. <laughs> it's right on your third eye. Yeah, it's right where it should be, and it's. Uh, listen, I'm I'm proud, even though uh, I'm married into this family. I'm very very proud. You know, the our patriarch is uh, 92 years old. Wow. And it's a, a strong, loving. Uh, Italian American family who's in the farm business. Yeah, I mean, what could be greater than Italians farming and making food? I live in food paradise. It's incredible. I'm not 700 pounds. That's fantastic. And Christopher, I've been seeing so many things that you've been doing. I would love to hear about them. I, I've seen books and just like so many things. You're like in a period of a lot of create creativity, and I want to hear about it. 
Well, thanks for noticing. Yeah, I am in a period of a lot of creativity. And, you know, it's interesting. It, 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 maybe you'll tell me it, it might be somewhat akin to uh, your relationship with Dan. I think in my case, on the writing side with uh, Cole and with Eddie, when you have partners, you know, we sort of we feel like a band. We call ourselves a, a business writing band. And insofar as we've committed to do work together for years, oh, you know, so meaningful work over a meaningful amount of time. And while the three of us have other interests and do other things, of course, we do the, the vast majority of our writing together. And so um, what being in a creative band means is, A, the, the quality of the work changes, at least in my case, radically. Because if you were to draw a Venn diagram, you know, the three of us have overlapping skills and interests. And then, of course, we have very different areas. And so, you know, I was just working on a new, um, we call them mini book newsletters because most of them are 700, 8,000 words, somewhere in that range. You know, I was working on one yesterday, like I almost always am. And as I got done with it, you know, I said to Carrie, I said, you know, this is another great example of the power of the three of us. Yeah. And so when it, in, in my case, when it's three people and we're on a regular cadence, um, it drives you to a level of quality and a level of quantity that at least left to my own devices uh, would not be the case. Yeah. I think there's so much to be said about how creativity um, ha directs like a sense of purpose and connects you more to yourself. So the fact that you're doing it with other people is extra meaningful. I think that the two... The two answers that I have whenever someone asks me my opinion on the meaning of life, my answer is always con connection and the ability to create something from nothing. Well, and um, not sure if you remember, but on one of our many in one of our many discussions, you said something to me like, and I'm paraphrasing, that sort of creativity or creation was the sort of ultimate purpose of a human being and sort of the ultimate state for a human is when we're creating. And I forget exactly how you said yeah. it, but it was something along those lines. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like being connected to the part of me that creates, which in my case is mostly writing, but it can be anything. Creativity can be baking or raising a child or anything that creates something from nothing. But I think it's us at our most us. Yes. It's the answer to every possible existential crisis. You know, going back to the part of you that is creating something. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think for a lot of us, uh, the amount we create uh, decreases as we get older. Um, and if you look at the average three-year-old and how creative they are, one might think that as you aged, you'd get more creative, but it seems not always to be the case. That's so funny. I never would have thought of it that way. I have gotten more creative as I've gotten older. I think when I was very little and I knew right when I learned how to write that that's what I wanted to do. Like when I was, I don't know how, I don't know how old a kid is when they learn to write, I'm guessing four or five, like, but the older I get, the more I want to just do that. Like writing is, it's just so fulfilling and makes me so happy. And I think that whenever someone asks me, you know, what is it that I can do to not feel so lost? Um, my, my answer is always like, go make something. It doesn't matter what. And it doesn't even matter if it's... Yeah, go make something. Yeah, yeah, go make something. Go create something. Yeah, go make something. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, 
Now, I've believed this for a very long time. I experience it in my life, uh, and I have for a long time, but especially now, that writing is a superpower. If you're willing to gift yourself a label called writer, that is to say you are willing to call yourself a writer, and you write and hit publish every once in a while, that while there are other very powerful superpowers, um, writing is, um, is right up there at the top, I would say, of superpowers. And so tell me about your relationship with writing, Dushka. My relationship with writing is idyllic. Um, I have heard great writers like Hemingway say that you have to bleed at the keyboard. And I have never associated writing with anything that hurts. I have never felt frustrated with it or I've never experienced writer's block. I've never felt that I have to suffer at the keyboard or with my pencil. It's just pure joy. It always has been. And it, I feel like I write because I have to, which is something a lot of writers say, like they don't really have a choice to not write. Not writing just feels so dark to me. But I also feel like it keeps me emotionally organized. A lot of the a lot of the experience that I have with being in touch with my own thoughts comes comes through writing. So I would say that my relationship with writing is pretty much the best relationship I've ever had. Hmm. Interesting. I, I would say the same. I, I, um, I have bled at the keyboard. I don't anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I mean, not that it couldn't happen, but I don't suffer from writer's block. I, one of the things about being in a band is we always have ideas to work on. I mean, we lack of ideas is not our problem. Same. I, I write about anything that I discover that makes me suffer less. And I feel like there's things that I discover that make me suffer less pretty much every day. But I also am an avid user of Quora, the question and answer site. And it, to me, it's just a, a place to find prompts. Like every question is a prompt. So I feel like as long as people have questions that they ask, I will have something to write about. It's interesting you say that because one of my biggest sources of enjoyment on Twitter and LinkedIn, more LinkedIn than Twitter, is the questions people ask, sometimes directly to me or sometimes more out into the general internet ether. And to your point, I find in responding to questions, I discover what I'm thinking about something. And that invariably will lead to a newsletter, part of a book, or or maybe just a tweet. But it's in the dance um, with others. Yeah, there are so many questions that I see and I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. But there are so many that I'm like, I think I can, I can give that a shot. Or I think I have my answer. Maybe not the answer, but my answer. And writing out answers, like the exercise of answering questions directly to me or in general um, helps me... I already know what I'm thinking, so I don't discover what I'm thinking, but it helps me make it just clearer and crisper. And sometimes I discover things. I'm like, well, I didn't know I thought that, or I, I didn't I didn't think to put it in that way until it came out of my fingers, which is a fantastic. Yes. Yeah. And then there's another piece of this. My buddy, Tom Schwab, who's the founder of Interview Valet, he says it much more eloquently than this, but he says he's got a, a line of thinking that, that sort of goes like this. What you know and do that you think is common is like a fantastic discovery uh, for somebody else. Yeah. And so one of the things I like about responding to questions is when you see what somebody's question about something is, and, and I have this moment that I think Tom is talking about, which is you discover 
that something that you've known for years is an answer to a mystery for somebody else. Yeah, or something that I discovered that I was like, this this must be very obvious to other people, but it wasn't obvious to me. So if I write it down and share it, maybe other people who don't find it obvious will also discover it, which is yes, basically what my new book is about as it relates to relationships. I don't mean to, tra- like, I, I, that was not a deliberate transition, but I'll give you an example. <laughs> I'll give you an example of... I love all your books. So you, you could talk about your new book, your old book, and any book in between. And I'm, I'm hoping you'll read to me. Like, Oh, I'm happy to. I, I'll, I'll, I have a few things to read to you. But I'll, I'll give you an example of something that I discovered that is like, basically, this new book that I wrote that came out just last week is about relationships. And it's called Please Don't Blame Love. And here's a very obvious thing to other people that was not obvious to me. So if someone is mad at me, a friend or a significant other is mad at me, they're like, you know, for example, you say, Dushka, this, you know, this thing that you did hurt my feelings. My priority there, the, the first thing out of my mouth or in my ha- head is, I didn't do that deliberately, which basically makes it about me instead of me listening to why I hurt your feelings, right? So if you tell me, Dushka, before defending yourself, hear the other person out so that they, so that you listen to how the other person feels and hold your horses on explaining why you didn't do it deliberately. That to me was a huge discovery. I was like, oh my God, I am prioritizing defending myself over listening to the other person. And the reason I'm doing it is because the message is, Christopher, I wouldn't hurt you deliberately, right? But the other person doesn't care if you did it deliberately. The other person is in pain and needs to be heard. So through things like this, I discovered that just like writing, relationships are a skill. And that there are things that I, that someone can just tell me, this is how you manage this, or this is what you could do instead of this other thing, that make relationships, instead of this impossible enigma that I have always considered them to be, just way easier. If instead of defending myself, if instead of being super defensive, I just hear the other person out, the other person instantly feels heard, which makes the entire conversation and the process of going from you're hurt to you're not hurt anymore so much easier. Another example is making assumptions. Um, I always felt like if I really loved you, I would know what you wanted, or I would just know what you needed. And it never occurred to me that I, instead of bending myself into a pretzel to figure out what it is that you wanted, I could just ask you. And I'm like, this is so much easier to just ask instead of making assumptions. And that's another thing that I wrote about in this book about like, you don't, you don't be defensive, instead listen. And instead of making assumptions, you can just ask. And just like this, there are many, many, I'm going to say tricks, you know, tricks of the trade, but really skills that make relationships with other people much easier. And I think that in a world of fairy tales and soulmates and living happily ever after and looking for the perfect relationship, it behooves us to learn that relationships aren't perfect, that there is no soulmate, that you make your soulmate, you create the soulmate, you don't find it, right? And that if you have a few tricks up your sleeve and a few ways to learn how to listen, relationships become much easier. And I thought that I would just put all that into a book and offer it to other people in the hopes that they would find it as non-obvious as it once was to me. Well, and bless you for doing that, Dushko. I was just going to say, you mentioned Dan at the beginning of this, and Dan illustrated the book, and it's just really, really beautiful. It has He did made the cover, and he made all of the illustrations, and it's just 
the sweetest possible addition to the book. And so you and Dan now have been working together for a few years, yes? It's been two and a half. We've been working together for two and a half years. Two and a half years. And you're an introvert. Yes. And you have written mostly alone. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the process of writing, which you and I have spoken about before on the show was I have always considered writing to be sort of an activity that keeps me mostly isolated. As you know, you need to concentrate to write, you need silence to write. And it's just been something that I do with me. And um, I discovered through social media that writing could actually connect me. It could connect me to other people. And so now it's an intensely connected, non-isolating activity that I do with other people. And that is how I wrote 11 books, 12 books. And then Dan and I started collaborating on writing and him drawing, illustrating, and me writing the books. So the last four books have been I writing the book and him illustrating it. And so a a couple things or many things in there. Uh, What's it like to have a collaborator? It's wonderful. First off, Dan is incredibly wonderful to work with. We are incredibly, incredibly compatible. He is, we, we think very similarly, but think very differently at the same time. Yes. So we, our profession, we both explain complicated things in simple ways. I do it through writing and he does it through drawing. And so we come at things in many ways very similarly, but he also thinks of something or says something or does something that I'm like, what? I never would have thought of that. So it's just endlessly interesting for me to work with him. And has it changed your writing to be working with an illustrator for for this amount of time? I don't think it's changed my writing, but I think it has added another dimension to my writing. One of my favorite examples of a Dan Rome illustration, and I'm going to describe it to you because we, people are hearing us and can't see it, is me writing a post about white lies and how white lies... I'm like, if you're um, saying a white lie to someone, it's because you want to protect them from the truth. And that is very, very disrespectful because you're managing the truth for another person. So like, it's a lie, don't do it. And Dan illustrated... Uh, uh, made a drawing of a woman being told that something was just very small and there's a huge tidal wave coming up behind her. And when I saw that drawing, it just gave me chills. I was like, this is exactly what it means to be to be t- told a white lie because you can't see the truth if you believe in the person telling you the the lie. So I think that he has added an enormous amount to what I write with his drawings. And uh, that's so cool. And especially at this stage of your career, I mean, you're hugely successful on your own. And now to come together and collaborate, it's a whole new dimension. You know, I've, I've always prized independence as a, a strength. I, I am very, yep. I'm just very, I just go, I want, I like figuring things out by, on my own. I'm not extremely social or I am social, but I need time to recover from being social. Yes. And the, the notion that collaboration and asking for help and having someone else add a dimension to what I do is such a, I think it, I've, I've decided that independence over overly putting a lot too much value on independence is also a weakness that we are so much better with collaborate. And that, that is one of the many, many things that Dan has taught me just like how much better it can be if you are collaborating with someone to enrich what you do, which is what you're describing in your, in your relationships with, when you're in your three musketeers dynamic. Yes. 
And, you know, the interesting thing about that, a defining characteristic of human, of being human, is the ability to collaborate at scale, right? And it's not that there aren't animals that collaborate on things. There certainly are. But human beings, when we collaborate at any kind of scale, can do extraordinary things. Extraordinary things that we cannot do alone. Like as yes. as 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 lone rangers as we can be, what we do to what we accomplish together is so, we are so much greater than the sum of our parts. And I think that has been such an important lesson in in terms of like writing this book about relationships and learning about relationships and learning how important it is to accept the influence of others, but also learning how much better everything is when you're collaborating with someone. It, it's just it, it has been a very, very wonderful experience. What did you learn that maybe was a little unexpected for you as you were writing? A, what did you learn about relationships, writing about relationships? Yeah, I, I think many things. One is that if you do things a certain way, it's not so hard. A little bit even like collaboration. Like you don't have to do everything alone. You can collaborate and that does not make you weaker. Um, you don't have to guess everything. You can ask. You don't need to defend yourself. You're not being attacked. The other person is hurt and you need to listen. Learning to listen better, like so many things. Um, but oh, but mostly how many things are normal that I thought were not good. For example, you're not supposed to fight. And, I'm, and it's like, of course you're supposed to fight. Fights make you stronger. You're, ju you're just supposed to fight well. And um, not fighting means not facing a lot of the things that are happening in your relationship. And you know, avoiding the fight is not saving you from anything. It's just, it just means that you're not talking about things and you know how important it is to communicate like so many things, so many things that I maybe a little bit knew <clears throat> or I knew that it wasn't practicing relationships. They don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be perfect to, to be incredibly good. Yeah. And what the fuck's perfect anyways? It's so overrated. Well, either it's all perfect or it's all imperfect, right? I mean, what? Yeah. Perfect. I mean, what? What's perfect? If it's it's perfect, if you say it's perfect, yeah. Yeah. So read to me. Read to me something fantastic, please. I'm going to read you my answer to the question: Is love a social construct? And here's my answer: Marriage is a social construct. So is playing hard to get, monogamy, and the sense that a person can belong to you. Religion is a social construct, and tradition, and family, and prayer. Much of what we believe in, how we behave, and the norms we follow. Money is a social construct, and the currency and the letter of the law. Mondays are a social construct, as is noon and the fact that it's past my bedtime. Things we build are social constructs, like architecture and language, and the things that we create, like art, music, literature, and entertainment. Whatever we decide to wear as a singular form of self-expression is a social construct, and so is every bit of the culture we evolve in, unfold in, establish ourselves in, give ourselves over to in an attempt to belong. Much of what we think others are, and even who we think we are, is a social construct, and everything I do to get you to like who you think I am. This is not to say that these things do not really exist or are not important or valuable, but rather that they're all true because we as a society have decided that they are. It is quite possible that there's only one thing that's objectively real, and that is love. I love you, Dushka. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you. Let me read you the one about assumptions because I already talked about it. So which is better, assumptions or questions? And to the earlier point of the conversation, this may be very obvious to many people, but it wasn't to me. And I think 
I make assumptions without even noticing that I do. So get becoming aware of the times that I'm making an assumption is, you know, I think a big part of this um, assumption dilemma. Assumptions come from me, my interpretation. As such, they are a reflection of my experiences, my biases, my prejudice, and my stories. They're about me, not about another person. And yet I use them to decode, understand, or jump to conclusions about somebody else. If I am stopping at my own interpretation, this is an impediment to me getting to know another person. I can't get to know someone else if all I see is me. It's hard for another person to feel seen or understood if my conclusions all come from me. Every assumption is a missed connection. Assumptions are an excellent way to live inside the stories that I fabricate. Inside this story, I live in the past instead of taking in new information. I blame instead of taking responsibility. I create distractions and obstacles that don't exist. I experience anger or stress over things that never took place. There is a muscle that gets a workout when I go through the exercise of finding out what I need to know. I ask, and every time I do, I get better at communicating. Conversely, assumptions turn making assumptions into a habit. It's better to ask so many questions, even when I think I know, even when I think I should know, even when the other person thinks I should know. It's so much clearer, so much fresher, so much easier out here, outside the stale air of my own recycled stories. I love that, Dushka. Thank you. Yeah, so we can just ask, Christopher. We can just, yes. you know, how are you? Just ask. How did you sleep? Are you doing okay? Have you been busy? Anything. We can ask anything. What do you want for dinner? I think that this is what you want to order at the restaurant. I think this is where you want to go eat, but I can also just ask you. Right. And it's interesting when we ask and we surrender the assumption, we open ourselves up to, I saw you posted recently or somewhat recently on serendipity. Yes. Serendipity is one of my favorites. Yeah. We wrote a category pirates about this. And I think we have a somewhat similar view, which is you have to be, first of all, you have to acknowledge how serendipity is such a positive driver in our lives. The way you and I met, serendipity. Absolutely. And where our relationship has gone, if, if you and I were not open to sort of radical serendipity, you know, where our relationship started, I was the head of marketing, you were the head of a PR firm, there was a crisis. I mean, it was a very serious business situation and it could very well have been that our relationship stayed in that place and that would have been fine, but we're in a radically different place than we were uh, when we met. And all of those things are serendipitous happenstance, but we must be open to them and we must acknowledge it when it happens. Yes. And what that means is... To, to tie it all together, because this is what I wish someone had told me. Writing is a skill, so it's not something mm -hmm. writers do. It's something you get good at. Relationships are a skill. It's not something you're born knowing. You learn how to do it better. And serendipity is a skill. And the reason I think that's interesting is because so many people think serendipity just happens to you. It either happens to you or not. It's like, Christopher, you're so lucky. And it's like, no, it's a skill. And the, that means you can make more. That means you can get better. And how you get better is to, is that you believe in it. You you leave yourself open for it. Yes. You leave time for it. So uh, to your point, what made us take advantage of the serendipitous nature of our relationship was that we fed it and we were open to it, just like you said. So it's a skill. We can all have more. Yeah. I mean, when I first started to see you writing on the internet, I was like, 
what is this chick doing? <laughs> I started reading it. I'm like, uh, this isn't business content. What, what's she up to? Oh, she's, she's really up to something here. She's really doing something highly unique and writing about things in, you know, business contexts in some cases that, uh, I mean, virtually every single one of your posts on LinkedIn has nothing to do necessarily with work. You're just writing interesting, wonderful shit on LinkedIn. Yeah. I also think that it has to do with work in that we are not compartmentalized beings. We have a life, right? And we go into an office in the context of a greater life that we live. So if I say serendipity is a skill, it might not be directly related to business, but I want you to know that you can make more serendipity if that's what you want whether or not it's directly related to the business that you're running, you know? So I think it is because I write about human things and human people run businesses. We hope that human people run businesses. <laughs> you know, mo in most cases. Um, this is actually a little bit the opposite of serendip serendipity, which is why I pulled it up. It's called relinquish that search. There are two beliefs that will guarantee increasing unhappiness. The first is that someone else can make you whole. The second is that things are better somewhere else. This is how you implant a permanent sense of restlessness in your delicate ecosystem. This is how all you learn how to do is run. Relinquish every insatiable desperate search. Stop running. Let the dust settle here. Land here. Cultivate here. Here is where it's at. Discover this now or you risk finding out you've lost all the things you didn't realize you already had. So great. Reminds me of a saying I heard once, which is, if you can't be here, you'll never get there. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Right? Because if you think that being here requires getting there, then you get there and it's not, you're not here anymore. <laughs> being here is the most powerful thing you can do. Yeah. And I think that, for example, is the kind, the kind of thing that I would post on LinkedIn. And it's just like, where is everyone running? Where are you going? It's right here. It, it isn't anywhere else. I don't know. I think that we need a lot more human humanity in our in our business interactions. Hmm. Do you think that's changed at all over the pandemic? That have we become more human, or or, or not? Or what, what? What do you think? That is such a difficult question. I think the pandemic has 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 changed us. I think it's changed everyone. I think it's made what I what I noticed most of all is I think everyone has been through so much that we are afraid. Our, we, are, we are emotionally afraid, which means that we have maybe less of an ability to see everything and more a need to just focus on the immediate task at hand. And I think that that, in, in a sense, can translate to more sensitivity and more creativity, and it can also translate into less tolerance because we've just had it. It's been so many different things. Yes. And when there it feels like there's crisis or challenge after challenge after challenge, it's easy to hunker down and hunker in, right? We become me slash my family, my local world oriented because we got to sort of batten down the hatches on the ship. And so exactly. That is um, exactly what I mean. I feel we are in a in a hunker down world and I don't think it's it's born out of selfishness i think it's born out of, i think we are in survival mode it seems like there's been a lot of cortisol pumping through a lot of people's veins and you know you just see all the political anger and the yelling on social media and all of those things seem to be symptoms of some of this anyway absolutely and i think the antidote is what you're doing which is creating i think the antidote is to 
get back into that sort of like universal charge that is creation, plug into that universal charge that is creation. So I, th I think that my hope is that we will emerge out of this more uh, self-aware and just more conscious. But I think right now we are mostly hunkered down and that is what I see. Now, out of curiosity, you know, we had some economic hardship during the down, uh, during the um, pandemic, of course, people lost their jobs, they lost their businesses. Uh, it looked like during the pandemic, at one point, maybe there was going to be a recession. Of course, the government came in and bailed businesses and bailed individuals out. And But here we are again, where, you know, 2022, there was economic uncertainty. We had two down quarters. Um, some people are... are uh, saying that, you know, there's a really big, scary recession coming. And so this time of uncertainty seems to be continuing. And so I'm just curious, Dushka, you know, somebody who uh, has had the kind of life that you've had, an extraordinary life, and you've had to face many challenges. And of course, you've faced many recessions as a business leader, uh, but you're also a thinker and this hugely sensitive person and this yoga meister and all the things that you are how do you think about facing tough economic times? So I'm not going to answer that question from an economic standpoint because I am not a, an, an expert in economy, but I will tell you that I equate going through what we're going through, like being on a boat where the water is very, very turbulent. So imagine like at the surface, there's you have a boat and the water is very turbulent and deeper, the water is more still. And I think that there's a lot that happens that keep us keeps us at the surface where things are really turbulent. And if we take a moment and just take a breath and think of everything that we're going through from a deeper standpoint, a lot of what we're going through is temporary. A lot of what we're going through is going to change. And if something has characterized the past two and a half years, it has been an incredible amount of change, like faster than we can process it. And I think that if we go deeper where the water is you know, less at the surface of the water where it's more turbulent, I think the water is more still there. So I would say that going deep in yourself, spending time alone, seeing how you're feeling more than what you're thinking, in involving yourself in things that, that mean collaborative creation is the most peaceful place to be. And I think that we will come out of this just like we have come out of all of the other recessions. It's terrifying and feels like it's the end but it's just temporary yes this too shall pass it shall pass i was trying to do the math i i think this is as an adult i think this is my fifth recession if i'm counting them properly i actually googled them to see but i think it's my fifth and this too shall pass is a very important uh reminder in this i think because, of course, these things are cyclical. At the same time, you, you mentioned something in, in what you just said around fear. Uh -huh. And so can you share with me a little bit about how you think about fear? Yes. I think that there's two kinds of fear. The fear that is primal and that is not necessarily real. For example, my fear of heights or getting on stage, right? Stage fright. And the fear that is real, which is I am in a dark alley at two in the morning alone, right? And I think that a lot of the fear that we suffer from is primal and it's real to us. It's real to our system, but we're not in actual danger. Um, and I, I think that that fear, I will, call, I will call it anxiety. And I think that what we are going through is a lot more anxiety than it is fear. And uh, th that is not to say it's any less real. 
I just mean it's temporary and we can tell ourselves that we have been through things that we have survived before and that the sense that things that it's over, that we're finished, that there's no next chapter is not true. Yes. During the pandemic, I was like, how are we going to get through this? How, what, it, what does this look like? How does this end? Like, is, how are we going to come out? Like to me, even a vaccine seemed like really unlikely. And the fact is that you will come out of this, even if you're not clear how, and that is incredibly useful for me to remember. And I, I think I tell this to myself when I'm going through grief, when I have suffered tremendous loss, when I'm going through a breakup, you know, you will get out of this, even if you don't know exactly how. And so that's something that that and I'm, I'm, this is a question. That's something we have to teach ourselves to trust. Yes. Yes. I think it's easier for you to trust that we will come out of this when you have seen yourself come out of it than when you are younger and maybe have never been through a recession and have only experienced up, up, up and suddenly things are not up and you're like, what the hell is going on? So I think that part of it is you teaching yourself that it's going to be okay because it has been okay in the future. And a part of it is you just knowing I've been through this before. I have experiences and it feels really scary, but it's going to be okay. And I don't, I don't, I am definitely not a believer that it's always going to be okay. I think horrible things happen. And I think that um, sometimes things be getting better takes time. But I think in general, what we are going through is temporary. It's always temporary. <laughs> exactly. And so the other thing that's sort of fascinating about you, Dushka, is, of course, you have an extraordinary career um, as a communications executive at the most senior levels, working on PR and communications with CEOs and entrepreneurs and, and, and so forth. Um, and you also have this legendary career as a, as a multi-time best-selling author. And so it seems like to me that what you've done is created sort of, if you will, a bit of a, a portfolio of Dushka expressions and Dushka interests. And so you can, you can achieve sort of satisfaction, achieve a sense of contribution, a sense of making a difference in multiple domains, in yoga as well, maybe you'll tell me. And so how much of sort of kind of where you view your life right now and, and how you maintain yourself, if I could call it that way, comes from this, uh, this reality that you've created for yourself where there's multiple use cases of Dushka and you seem to enjoy each use case, um, you know, very much. Yeah. If I were to uh, explain myself in a, the briefest way possible, I would say that I'm a writer. And I think that everything I do in terms of work and, you know, executive communications and communications and PR and, you know, media training and how to be do a better presentation and how to write and everything is, how can I say that better? How can I say better what, I, what I'm thinking or how can I say better what another person is telling me? Um, and in a way, it's all writing and editing, all of it, everything I do. And I'm always hungry for different ways to say that better. I'm hungry for it in terms of, you know, my relationships or hungry in terms of my friendships or in terms of what I do for a living. Uh, at, at its most basic, I, I think I can say it better. I'm like, I, I think I can say that better. I think I can make it easier to understand. And it seems to me that you, by creating a career that is a, a melange, a mix okay. 
of things you love to do, but at the core, it feels very much the same, um, this creativity through writing. My question is, if you were just an author, just in air quotes, if you were just uh, an executive coach, if you were just a community, you know, if you were just one thing as opposed to a mix of these things with a shared core, uh, it just seems to me that the fact that you've got multiple ways to express yourself, multiple ways to make a difference, multiple ways to make a living seems to give you a foundation in life that is uh, somewhat uh, somewhat unique. Thank you. I, I've never really thought about it that way. I think what I would say is that the real foundation is practice. Um, you mentioned yoga, and that's the first thing that I thought. I think you, I say, I think that if I do that and break it down into small steps and do it every day, I think the chances are I will get better and what I do will accumulate. So I never, I've, I never really set out, Christopher, never. I never thought I want a career in writing. I never, I've never thought that or I'm going to write 15 books. If somebody had said you one day will be an author of 15 books, I would have completely not believed them. But I do say I can write every day. I can absolutely do that. Or I can do a yoga pose every day. If someone had said one day you will be able to do a hand, uh, headstand or a handstand, I would have been like, absolutely not. It defies gravity. And if I go and try it every day, eventually it's not going to even be hard. And I think, I think that I'm I'm very confident in the fact that if I, that I, I'm, I'm confident in my sense of discipline and that if I set out to do something every day, I will. And I've seen over and over that the result of doing something every day really adds up to incredible things and that the result of doing something every day adds up to me doing something I didn't think I could do. And I think that practice, that superpower, everyone can get better at writing. Everyone yes. can generate more serendipity. Everyone can get better at relationships. And the answer in every case is break it down into small steps and do a little bit every day. Yes. And it's amazing how simple that is. We've all known this. For most of us, this is not a revelation, what you just said. And yet more and more, it seems like we live in a world that is addicted to the now you know, we had Xander Rose on the podcast a while back, the the director of the Long Now Foundation. And he said, we have fetishized the urgent, which I thought was an interesting way of saying it. He, very fascinating guy. And then I know this has been said a million times, but I feel like it, it fits here. We radically underestimate what we can achieve over a period of time. Absolutely. I agree with the urgency quote so much, but I also think that just like we are fetishizing urgency, we also adore gigantic moves of like, I want to change, so I'm going to sell all my things and go backpacking across whatever. And the reality is that real change and our what is going to save us and what is going to preserve our sense of safety and our self sense of balance and our mental health is in the small things. There's no glory in getting up like, Dushka, how did you write 15 books? I want to, people want to hear. I went off and I moved into an island and I shut myself out from the world and I emerged from the woods with 15 books. That's the kind of story people want. But the reality is I sat down and I wrote them an hour at a time, you know, over the course of whatever, five, six years. So I think practice is less sexy you know, it's less urgent, it's less broad, but it's available to all of us. And I think that it's how we're going to get out of the situation that we're in. We are going to get out of survival mode and we're going to remember that things get better 
and we're going to remember that things are going to be okay, and we're going to correct the things that are not going in a, in a good direction, one tiny step at a time, because that's how most things get done. Yes. And of course, in business, we get paid to produce results, and we get paid to produce those results in a time frame that matters, right? So uh, as executives, you got to deliver the quarter every quarter. And if you're in charge of product and there's a big new launch and we're orienting the whole company around a June 1st launch of this big new product, then you got to be able to launch that product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are time-based things that, that, that create pressure, uh, positive pressure in a lot of cases. At the same time, I just had this experience. So uh, I remember when I first started podcasting, I, I think we're coming up on six, six I think this is going to be six years it's now. incredible. Right? Hard to believe. And and I, I remember being three or four months in and, you know, we had this initial success and I expected it just to be like exponential, you know, always. And then we sort of flatlined after the first three to six months. I can't remember. It was long, so long ago now. Anyway, I remember getting down on myself about the download numbers when I still looked at the download numbers. I don't anymore. <laughs> I understand. Um, Neither would I. Most mostly now because they frighten me because it, I don't want to even think about the numbers. But, but anyway, I remember there was this point Dushka, where I thought, I remember saying to my producer at the time, you know, it, well, if this is how this is going to be, you know, I'm going to do this for a little bit longer, but like, I'm not going to keep fucking doing this, you know? And there we were three to six months in and there's a website I just found out about not long ago called listen notes. And I guess they, they they chart and rank podcasts anyway so went on to listen notes well this fucking podcast is in the top 0.5 percent of podcasts on the planet there's almost 3 million there's 2.8 something million and here we are and i just had this moment of looking back on my stupid self when i was so frustrated for no reason in the beginning and now i don't even look at the numbers and don't even care because here's the aha, I'm, get, I'm getting to a point, which is on one hand in business and sometimes in life, putting the puck in the net in a timely fashion is exactly what needs to get done. And I always thought that was the reward. The reward was winning. The reward was the puck goes in the net and the red light goes on. The reward was an outcome. And outcomes are very important. But the aha is the reward for writing and the reward for podcasting or anything else you love is that you get to do it. And so, I don't know, it's been a big unlock for me to move to, you know, I'm, I will probably podcast for the rest of my life. I know I will write for the rest of my life. No, to me, so I'm, I'm going to tell you something. You are an incredibly, incredibly beautiful person and you have so many things to say and you have so much in your heart and there's so much stuff that you want to share to me i don't give a shit about how the podcast does i will never care how the podcast does i care that you are sitting behind a microphone and that you are talking and that it it is its own reward i feel like it it is you doing something that that makes you feel purposeful that makes you feel fulfilled that makes you think feel like you're contributing. And the fact that we get hung up 
on views or downloads or whatever is us entirely missing the point. It's so sad that we measure our value and the value of what we create through a, through a social construct instead of measuring it through our contribution to ourselves. Yes. And it's funny, I look at most of my heroes, certainly outside the business world, and I don't think any of them care about any of the, you know, so musically, for example, Tom Waits is one of my all-time favorites. And I think Heart of Saturday Night by Tom Waits might be my favorite record of all time. Well, I've never met the man, but I'm pretty sure Tom Waits doesn't know and could give a fuck about how many records he sold. A thousand percent. And what if you told him how much his music moves you? Would he care about that? I think so. Yeah. I think when you, I mean, I haven't met him, but I've met some extraordinary people in my life uh, who are well known. And when you say to them, hey, thanks for your contribution, your music, your art, your whatever the thing is, you know, you, you've been an important part of my life and, and you don't know it. And I appreciate it. I think when you say that to somebody, that's a very powerful thing. Exactly. And it has nothing to do with, you know, a, a number of downloads. Another example, you are a powerful person and you use the podcast as a way to give a platform to people that you talk to. So you have a certain degree of success and use that success to make sure other people are being heard. And that is a huge service. I, that is a huge service for anyone who has ever been on this podcast. And that also cannot be measured by number of downloads. I wish people out there were able and courageous enough to contribute what they have to give without ever worrying about how, about any external measurement. It's funny, you know, we just, um, we just did a review of the last 12 months of Category Pirates and what the top sellers were and what the, uh, the bottom sellers were. And uh, the three bottom sellers, no surprise, one was on racism. I forget what the other two were on. And uh, the three of us agreed, we don't give a fuck. We are going to write about those things when we feel it's called for. And to me, that is, to me, that is the measure of your success more than your, the number of downloads. It is what exactly is your contribution? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we had a gal on not long ago. Um, her name is Kat, who wrote a book called Flat and Happy about uh, having cancer. I saw that. Electing to have both her breasts removed. And then electing not to have uh, the surgery afterwards. You know, I, I got some underhanded comments of, you know, what, what this is a business pie? Why are you, you know, this is an uncomfortable, you know, whatever. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. And that's an I think she's an extraordinary woman. She's the spouse of a friend that I worked with years ago who I deeply admire. And I thought she had something really powerful to say. I was inspired by her book. And to your point, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, and I, I think that that's another of your many, many gifts, right? The ability to make other people uncomfortable. We should all be made uncomfortable frequently. It makes us think. And it's funny, too, because it, 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 in the social digital world, when you do it, um, there's often a direct correlation that you can see in numbers if you want to go there. And that's a big part of why I don't look very often because I, I actually don't care. Good. Right. Because you realize what the mission is. Yeah. It's the difference between being mission driven 
and being a missionary and being a mercenary. Yeah. You know, it's the same reason that we're not on some big podcast network because I don't want anybody telling us what to do. I don't want to hear about it from anybody. No advertisers ever allowed to say a word to me about anything that goes on on a podcast. And if they do, they can go fuck themselves. Right. I think, I think that that matters. And I think that that, like I said, that, that is the measure of your success. And I would like anyone who listens to this podcast to say, I'm going to create something. And the way people typically measure success is not going to matter to me because what matters is that what I create is its own reward. In answer to your question, what is this chick doing when you were seeing me writing? That is what I was doing. I'm just hating. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the, here's the interesting thing. I know I've done this in my life. It's a mistake I have made. I will probably make it again. I hope less so. But the mistake of trying to fit in of trying to mold ourselves into something we think somebody else wants. And of course, the more we try to do that, the more inauthentic we are, and the more, at least for myself, uh, con uh, uh, contorted I am. And the more you say, hey, this is fucking me. This is who I am. Um, and the more real you are, the results so it's it's this inverse relationship that doesn't seem obvious at first yeah the the more you attempt to be liked by others the more you attract one-sided relationships oh wow say that again the more you attempt to uh be liked by others the more you attract one-sided relationships because people are yeah attracted to the part of you that wants you to like them and therefore you are like why is everybody taking advantage of me and it's because you are prioritizing pleasing others over being who you are. And being who you are is basically the exp like expressing what you think, uh, being clear on what you want, being clear on what you need, being clear on who you are. And then, you, and then you're not for everyone, but no one is for everyone. As a friend of mine says, um, why am I trying to get everybody to like me? I don't even like everybody. <laughs> I don't like most people. <laughs> there you go. Let me see if I have one more thing to read you in closing. Please. Okay, here's a good one. It's called Three Things, <clears throat> which is a little bit what we were talking about now. In my own relationships, I have learned three things that have proven extremely useful to me that have contributed greatly to my satisfaction and my happiness. I'm going to share them with you here, hoping they do the same for you. The first thing is to identify what I want and to ask for it. Waiting for someone to do something for me, hoping they will just know I want it, is like expecting someone else to read my mind. Asking for what I want might, might, might sound like, can you give me a hug? I would love to hear you say you love me. I have found that when people know what I want, I am more likely to get it. This protects me from feeling disappointment or disenchantment. The second thing I've learned is that people don't love me the way I want them to love me. They love me the way they can. I cannot force the kind of love I want. I cannot measure their love with measuring tools meant to measure my kind of love. It's entirely possible for someone to never say they love me and for them to love me very much. Yes, there's a duality here. My ability to be clear on what I want and my ability to be elastic about what I get. Because I can exercise clarity, but I can't change you. In order for our love to work, I have to accept, to love, who and how you love. It is very beautiful to be loved a thousand different ways instead of just my way. The third thing I've learned is that I will never know why people do what they do. Asking why they do it is fruitless and keeps me stuck in a powerless infinite loop. My rule is that whenever I stand there wondering why someone is doing what they do, I have to figure out how to turn the question back to me. 
Why? Why does he never tell me he loves me? Becomes, why did I choose a man who won't say he loves me when there are plenty of other men who will? And he will not say he loves me. Is this a deal breaker or something I can live with? It's the greatest gift, I think, to exist in a peaceful place when you are loved for exactly what you can give and for exactly who you are. And I sure love you. <laughs> I love you back. Dushka Zapata, is there anything else? I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me. I will reach out to you more often so, so that we can hang out more often. So that we can hang out. In your please, very, please, very, please come back every other week. So that we can hang out in your very, very, very valuable podcast. And I don't care how many people download it. <laughs> you are what makes uh, uh, this this thing valuable. And you were our first guest. Yes, I was. And you are the most re most regularly appearing guest. Yes, that's fantastic. I intend to keep it that way. Yes, well, I, I would love it if we did. Thank you, Dushka. You're a gift. Thank you, Christopher. Talk soon. Well, there she is, the legendary Dushka Zapata. And um, check her out on Amazon.com, and you can get everything she's published there. And if you want to follow her for free and read everything she publishes for free, gratis, gratuit, on uh, Cora.com. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you very much for your time and attention. It means the world to us that you invest part of your life with us around here. want to remind you, go to, to uh, CategoryPirates.com. We recently launched the world's first introduction to category design course. It's called the Category Design Accelerator, and it's free, gratis, gratuit, rhymes with free. CategoryPirates.com. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you want an assistant who's a real person, empowered by technology, who will never get near you but will take great care of you, check out Bottleneck.online today. My friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out ATRE.net today. Also, want to remind you about Justice Deposits some of the world's leading entrepreneurial companies and some people who just give a shit have started to move their money, their deposits to black owned banks. Um, you see, this is really simple. You can get the same kinds of services and interest rates and so forth at, at a black bank than you would at a nasty, evil corporate bank. And uh, when a bank has more money deposited, they have more money to lend. So uh, we can give our black sisters and brothers fair access to capital by moving some of our capital to black-owned banks today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Please contact your lawyer, doctor, accountant, shaman, sensei, mystic, yoga instructor, and most importantly, category designer before acting on any of the information contained herein. <laughs> why is herein a funny word? And why do lawyers use it? I don't know. All right, so uh, do remain uh, disturbed. If you're into marketing and category design, check out uh, Lock It On Marketing wherever you get your oddcasts. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our uh, technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and uh, web design. All podcasts are recorded in Dolby ADHD using Squadcast. FM. Our law firm is Weed and Jack and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Please be kind and rewind this oddcast when you return it. Listen to Iggy Pop. Jeff Beck was right. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin.
This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? And today, our deepest apologies go to Andrew Tate. Sorry, Tate. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.